Gracious God, thank you so much for the day we've had, Lord, and the instruction that uh, this class has received, Father, according to your word. I pray you would use it, Lord, that this class would respond in faith and put these things to work in their own ministries and in their own lives, Lord God, uh, being counselors to their own souls and those who are closest to them and also people that they come into contact with. Lord, we pray that you would do much good, Lord, and trust that, uh, as as Paul says, and First Corinthians, that, Lord, uh, our labor is not in vain. Lord, uh, you use it. Even if we can't see how you use it, you use it. And so may we rest in that. And we ask this in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, it's our last little lecture when it comes to um, scrupulosity or religious OCD. Two, two months ago, we talked about the O in OCD, the obsessions related to that struggle of scrupulosity. And so now we turn to the C. Obsessive compulsive is uh, the C, compulsions in particular. And so I, I want to basically subtitle this lecture, Where Are You Placing Your Faith? Because I think that that's central to this discussion. Um the issue of compulsions, and I'll remind you what those are here in a moment, but it's just answering the question, where are you placing your faith? Where should you be placing your faith when it comes to the obsessions that you struggle with or your counselee struggles with, the, the fears and the anxieties associated with that obsession? Where do you trust? Where do you place your faith? So what are compulsions? Let's be reminded here, because we, we did go over this a couple months ago, but it's just we need a refresher. So Michael Emlett says this. Is using ritualistic behavior or mental processes to temporarily neutralize or reduce the anxiety associated with your obsession? What you think about, the activities you engage in ritualistically, repetitively. And we'll hit on this more in a moment, but it's only, the compulsion only gives the struggler a temporary relief. It temporarily neutralizes or reduces the anxiety but it ends up being worse later. I like this too. Michael Emlett says this elsewhere. He says, the compulsion is like a sacrifice. It it atones for the obsession, which is the sin. It is a cultic ritualistic system that bypasses the once for all sacrifice of Christ and thus offers no lasting hope. That's so helpful. Like, okay, I'm struggling with this, this fear, this, this obsession. And so in order to um, atone for it, so to speak, I've got to engage in this activity. I've got to engage in this mental process. And it has nothing to do with the cross. It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it actually bypasses the gospel. And therefore, it has no hope that perseveres for the Christian Those are definitions, but what about 
examples. Uh, we've we hit on some of this a little bit a couple of months ago, but we're going to get more detailed in this explanation. So let's look at some examples of compulsions specifically related to scrupulosity or religious OCD. And just remember, uh, I'm um, specifically thinking of scrupulosity, which has more to do with obsessions related to what is moral, right? Things moral in nature, not necessarily orderliness or cleanliness, uh, which is uh, kind of typically what we think of in OCD, but religious OCD, things that are moral in nature. So, what are some of these compulsions? Repeated checking. You remember me talking about this. Steve Byers actually has a, uh, a chapter in the book, Counseling the Hard Cases, on OCD. And he says this about checking. He calls it mental fl- flagellation. Or think of flagellum, right? A scourge, a whip. Like you're whipping yourself. It's just engaging in this torturous um, introspection. Isn't that what Keith taught on last night? Introspection, right? It's torturous mental game that really is, um, it, it just saps the struggler of spiritual strength and energy. And the checking can be with a number of different things. We talked about this with, with my own experience last time of uh, checking the locks and the doors before I go to sleep and, and the, the feeling like I, I need. That's the, you'll hear that in your mind, right, for the struggler. I need to check the locks multiple times just to make sure because what if somebody breaks in? What if they harm my children? And so that's the, uh, that's the fear, that's the obsession. And so you, ch- you check the locks on your doors before you go to sleep multiple times. That's one example. Or for other people, it could be checking the buckle on your child's car seat, not wanting to be responsible for what might happen if you overlooked that detail and your child was harmed and that would be on you and and you couldn't live with yourself if that was your fault. Remember, it's very self-centered in its focus. Or checking, here's another way we do this. Asking people if you've offended them. Right? Just, I want to make sure. You know, did, when, when I said this, did, was, that a, was that offensive to you? I, I've, I, listen, I've done that multiple times. And, you, and you'll get looks from people like, what, do you, what are you talking about? Like they didn't even think about it. They didn't even give it a second thought. And for the person who struggles in this way, uh, it can be something that they have just um, spent a lot of mental time and energy and stress mulling that over in their head. What if when I said that, they thought this, and then you kind of take it on down the road, and it spirals downward from there. So you're checking, you're asking people if you've offended them. Or asking people for their perspective. Did I run that red light back there? Are you sure? Right? That's that's another one. Are you sure? And the people that are closest to uh, the scrupul- scrupulous people often feel very exhausted by their questions because it's so uh, frequent. Now, is it is it a good thing to to ask somebody else, hey, are you seeing it this way? Yeah, th- th- that can be a good thing, but then it quickly turns into something that is, uh, is, is overboard by asking repeated times. Uh, when you get the answer from the other person, you're not trusting the Lord with that answer. You have to ask again in a different way with a different emphasis in the question, you see. What about this? It's another example. Ensuring that you've scanned everything in your basket at the self-checkout. Like, there wasn't somebody 
that was scanning my groceries for me. I was doing it. So I've got to obsessively check everything, check the receipt against the items that I've got in the bags in the cart. There's an example. I was uh, reading I'm reading this article that I, I found online by a guy named Jonathan Bowers who's writing an um, article called OCD and the Death of the Christian. And he used an example of himself which, which uh, resonated with me because I struggled in the same way. And this is another, I think it's another element of checking. He said when he was in seminary that he had to report how much of a certain book that he read. Here's the percentage that I read of this book. And we had to do that when I was in seminary as well. And so um, he, would, he would read over a line and stress out, like, did I read every word in that sentence? Did I read every sentence in that paragraph? He said, I don't think so. I'll go back and read it again, right? Just to make sure. I, I, I struggle with that as well. It ends up being just a kind of a... a a stressful, frightened mess because, again, you're trusting in yourself to go back and repeat the exercise and you're trusting in yourself, ultimately. And just got to go back and check, okay? Like, maybe my mind was drifting during that par- paragraph. Well, that I don't know if I could count that as actually reading because my mind was drifting even though my words are on the page. So I better go back and do it again, right? Just in case. Other examples of compulsions. Research. Research. The the internet is probably not a good thing for people who are scrupulous. You can research forever on these different topics. Research to make sure you didn't misrepresent the truth. Okay, I know I said that to that person. Was was that a, was that actually correct? Did I did I have all the the details right? Was I being haphazard with my words there and careless in what I said? So I'm going to research to make sure I didn't, you know, essentially deceive somebody or misrepresent the truth. I'm going to research to make sure that uh, I didn't make a wrong decision, someone may think. That I want to make sure that decision I made is, is pleasing to the Lord. I want to make sure it's not going to end in a certain consequence Research to make sure that you didn't sin in the way that you think you did. Okay, I'm sure I'm frightened that I could have sinned in this way. I got to research to make sure that's not true. Or to research and ensuring that you're not that kind of person, the kind of person that you're fearful of being. This, this, you've got this ideal version of yourself that you really want to be true. And there's this other kind of person that you just you can't imagine being. And so I've got to do all the research I can and find out all of the answers to my uncertainties so that I can prove I'm not that kind of person. It's that kind of thing that people struggle with, with scrupulosity. Compulsions. What about this? Confession. Confession to God in prayer. Now, obviously, we should, we should be confessing our sins to the Lord on a regular basis. First John 1, 8 and 9 tells us this, right? Confess your sins, and God is faithful and just and will forgive you, forgive you your sins, right? 
And that's not just when you're um, coming into the kingdom of God, right? Of, of course, when we come to the Lord by repentance and faith, we're confessing our sins in that regard. But this is an ongoing, 1 John 1 is, is an ongoing confession of sin, right? So that we are um, drawing near to the Lord and receiving his fatherly forgiveness in Christ. That's a good thing. But it can become something that a scrupulous person trusts in. Instead of trusting in Christ, trusting in the confession itself, the activity of confessing. Did I confess? I didn't. Oh, wow. And then you obsess over the fact that you didn't confess. And so then that leads to a repeated confession. It's interesting, isn't it? So, so our, our hearts are so deceitful. We've got to be careful. There's something as holy as confession that can actually become what we depend on. The activity instead of the one that we're drawing near to in confession. So we can take something good and we can make it what our faith is directed toward. And the people that are around us may be none the wiser. They might not even know to ask that question. Are you trusting in your confession? So it's good to know these things as counselors so that you can ask, okay, what are you trusting in, Jesus Christ or these episodes of confession of your sin. Or think about think about Martin Luther before he came to Christ, before he realized justification according to Romans. And oh man, he, he could not confess enough. He was always in the confessional booth, repeatedly. Couldn't be good enough. Couldn't be good enough. And there's an element of that here, isn't there? You know, we, we've got so much sin. I mean, I think we talked about this uh, two months ago with John Bunyan saying, uh, there's, there's, enough sin, there's enough sin in my best prayer to condemn the whole world. If that's true, which I think it is, then we, we can't confess everything. There's, so, there's unknown sin. We, we, there's, there's sin you've committed today you don't know about. And so we've got to be careful that these things, um, we don't trust in the ways in which we draw near to the one who has saved us. But there's also confession to those you've sinned against or might have sinned against. You can wear people out with confessing your sins to them. And you need to confess. If you've, if you've sinned against somebody, yes, I mean, we, you're, you're biblical counselors. Go, go make it right. Confess to the people that you, you've hurt with your sin. Ask for their forgiveness. Engage in transactional forgiveness. This is good. But think about this. For scrupulous people, this can be for sins that are unknown to the persons they are confessing to. It could be sins of the heart, right? You go confess to somebody that you've been angry with them and they don't know it. You've not really shown, you've not shown that sin outwardly, but you feel so burdened by it and the compulsion is, I've got to go tell that person, listen, I've been angry with you, please forgive me. But now you're revealing to that person something they didn't even see. They didn't even recognize. So it's unknown. So think of this. You can see the selfishness of this once more because you go and do that just so that you can have your conscience assuaged, right? You can have a little bit of a relief and temporarily neutralize the obsession. Well, now you've hurt somebody because you're thinking about how you can get relief. It ends up being selfish in itself 
even though you're, you're thinking, okay, this is the right thing to do. Imagine um, pointing uh, out to somebody a sin that you've committed inwardly, and now that person has that knowledge. Now they're burdened with it. They didn't know it before, now they know it. I mean, it's one thing if the person has felt the sin, if you've hurt them in some way, but confessing heart sins to people, that's not caring for them. That's more just trying to get relief for yourself. And now the person's left with that knowledge and it burdens them. For the scrupulous person, it can also be mistakes, just mistakes, not things that are actually sinful. And they go and uh, ask forgiveness or confess these mistakes. See, because compulsions for the scrupulous person are often done just in case sin has been committed or just in case there's a potential for sin. I better co- cover all my bases. And what about what the fact that Christ said it is finished and our hope is in Him? Every sin paid for, all the wrath we deserve, Absorbed by, absorbed by Christ when he hung on the cross in our place. Other examples of compulsions. Ritualistic prayer and or scripture recitation, right? Think of um, memorized prayers. Think of memorized scripture and just repeating it over and over and over again. And that is the compulsion to temporarily neutralize the obsession and so, we, again, we've got to be careful because uh, it is a good thing. I mean, I have counselees all the time. Memorize Scripture. Please memorize Scripture so that you've got the sword of the Spirit at the ready for whenever you are battling temptation. So keep doing that, but there's gonna, if you're counseling somebody like this, and they need to be, listen, um, I want you to memorize this, but you are going to have to not only preach it to yourself, but also unpack what it means in your mind, Right? So it's not just a mindless repetition because uh, this is often characterized by mindlessness. So it's not just repetition. It needs to be an engaged mind thinking about what the verse actually means. That's why, like, so whenever uh, I assign Scripture memory, and I do it weekly for my counselees, um, what I do is I say, memorize, like 1 Corinthians 10.13, and meditate on it daily, right? In that, I'm saying it's not just a a mindless recitation that we want to engage in, where you're just able to regurgitate it to me. But it's it's no, I'm, I'm thinking about what it means, what, what it does in terms of application for my own life. So memorize and meditate on daily this verse. And that is something that uh, you would need to encourage, especially scrupulous people, to do. It's another another example of a compulsion is avoidance. Avoidance. Avoidance of public places, including church. To avoid vulgarity or indecency. I don't want to say something that someone would be offended by. I don't want to be indecent. Some people say uh, would not go to the bathroom, perhaps, thinking that, that they might do something indecent, even though they don't have a history of doing that. It's a fear that they have that they will. So they avoid public places. Or avoid, 
engaging with members of the opposite sex to avoid lust. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to be in close proximity to a person of the opposite sex. What if I lust? I've got to keep away from such activity. I've got to uh, put to death the flesh so I avoid. And that's my answer. That's what I'm putting my trust in. Talking, right? To avoid any form of deceit. I don't want to lie. And so... Um, I'm, just not, I'm just not going to speak because if I say something, that might not be entirely true. Might not have all of the right details, and I might mislead somebody. Or avoiding driving. We talked about this last time. To avoid harming or killing another person. I'm going so fast. How can I see everything that's going on around me all the time? There's so, there's so many things that, that could happen. So many cars on the road. Them, there's so many people that could be walking across the road. I'm just, it's just better not to, to drive. Not to drive at all. Avoiding even this. Even things with any kind of association to the fear that drives the obsession of the scrupulous person. Right? So not just the things themselves, but even something that could remind the person of what they're fearful of. Now we're, we're going back to you know, another level, like a sub-level. I'm avoiding the things I'm fearful of and the things that could remind me of the things I'm fearful of. Right? Compulsions in this way take Matthew 5, 29 and 30 too far. Look with me there. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. They take it too far. This is called radical amputation, right? It's the verse that we associate with that terminology, radical amputation. If something's helping you sin or encouraging sin in your life, get rid of it. But the way that the scrupulous person takes it too far is that they neglect God-given responsibilities in order to neutralize the anxiety. Things that they should be doing. So it's basically they're saying, okay, I'll trade this sin for another sin, Right? I'll trade this sin for a neglect of this God-given responsibility, and therefore they uh, really, again, like we talked about last time, they're being very selective in what they're choosing to concentrate on and what sins they're seeking to avoid. They don't want to be reminded of these things. And so let's avoid all remnants of things or associations of things that could point me toward the thing that I'm so... Crippled with fear over. Now, the danger of compulsions. Why are compulsions dangerous? Compulsions, like we've already said, they give temporary relief. But they leave the person more desperate and empty the next time they encounter intrusive thoughts the next time they encounter their obsession. I want you to look with me at a couple of verses. Let's look at the Psalms and then the Proverbs. Psalm 16, verse 4. I can't remember if we looked at this last time, so we're just going to do it again. 
It's a temporary relief, but makes things harder on that person next time. Psalm 16 verse 4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The person who is obsessed about something, doesn't want to think of themselves in a certain light, doesn't want to uh, engage in some sin because how could they live with themselves if they were uh, engaged in such a sin or they, they were that kind of person? Well, they're worshiping themselves. In that moment, that they're their own God, ultimately. And so, look what it says. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Again, our, our flesh preaches to us, it'll be, it'll be better. Just, just engage in this, you know, uh, this atoning sacrifice of the compulsion. Just engage in it, and it'll be better. It'll be sweet relief. You know you want it. You're so frightened right now. But we have to remember texts like this. No, no, no. Sorrows will multiply. It won't be better. Look at another text with me. Proverbs 25, 28. Proverbs 25, 28. It's this. Man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Certainly, I think that the scrupulous person and the, and the bouts of his anxiety and obsession engaging in these compulsions, we'd say, is lacking Self-control. What's the danger of that? Well, it says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And so, in that day, like Old Testament era, cities needed walls, right? The reason why cities needed walls is for protection because of the attacking, warring um, Nations that surrounded them, therefore they had to have those walls so that they could be safe and secure. Well, someone who engages in behavior that is uncontrolled leaves leaves themselves without protection. And I would say without spiritual protection. What the result is, is that um, I'm leaving myself open for attack spiritually. Whether that's from my own heart or from Satan and his demons, I'm leaving myself unprotected. I've engaged in something I thought was going to be better for me. And actually, it leaves me without the protection that I truly need because I'm not trusting God in my lack of self-control. What else? What other dangers? Look at Luke 16 with me. Luke 16, verse 13. This is a simple verse that tells us a profound truth. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so my second danger here is compulsions keep a person from serving God. In the compulsion, you are serving ultimately yourself, as we've referred, ultimately serving yourself, but 
Jesus is clear. You can't serve two masters at the same time. So it actually keeps you from something that should dominate your life, which is serving God. You're actually serving yourself instead. As if you are your own master. The idol of self. Also, compulsions keep a person from enjoying God's good gifts. This is, I think this is a helpful, um, can be a helpful deterrent when you help someone realize this. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 4. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And the person who is engaged in these compulsions, especially when you think about avoidance, right? They are keeping themselves from these good things that God has given them, legitimate things, things that they can praise God for, things that they should be thanking God for. They're keeping them out of their lives because they're trusting in this avoidance as a means to escape anxiety. They're trusting in that avoidance instead of engaging in uh, some activities or enjoying some of these gifts and saying thank you to God for them so that God's the focus instead of me being the focus in the things that I'm avoiding methodically. So it's sad. Listen, I want you to listen to this quote. Do you guys have a... Yeah, from a Puritan theology. Look at this quote. This is interesting. From a, a Puritan named uh, Samuel Annesley. He writes this. The scrupulous conscience determines a thing to be lawful, yet scarcely to be done, lest it should be unlawful. In other words, it is so afraid of sinning that it avoids even doing what is good and upright. Remember, I, I said just in case. That's, that's a big uh, little phrase. In terms of um, what they're thinking in their minds, that's a that's a big little phrase, right? That tends to dominate in certain parts of their mental processes, right? Um, I know it's a good thing, but if I do it too much, it could be sinful. I know God has given this to me and in order to enjoy, but I just don't want it to become sinful. I don't want it to be something that, um, that you know, makes me a certain kind of person or that, that uh, is, is binding for me or enslaving for me. So I'm just going to avoid it. I don't want to engage in it too much. It might be something that I end up loving too much. And you can see how um, for a lot of people to avoid something um, that might become enslaving would be a good thing. But for the person who struggles 
in a scrupulous way, it actually becomes a compulsion they're trusting in. Okay, I'm going to avoid good things I should be praising God for, and I don't want to engage in these good and right things that God has given because I just don't want it to become a problem. And again, that you can take a little bit of truth and make it too important. You can take a little bit of truth and, and you can make it too big. And I think that's what obsessive, compulsive people often do. What about what else? The dangers of compulsions. Compulsions keep a person from looking to Christ in faith. And that, that is central, brothers and sisters. That's central to the problem here and the danger. Keeps a person from looking to Christ in faith. I want you to look at Luke 18 with me. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, giving this parable, right? First of all, Luke tells us a little bit of context about this parable. He said, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treat others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee has this roundabout way of trusting in himself, right? He's thanking God, but that really is just a mask, isn't it? It's just a farce. I thank you, God, that I am not like all these other people. Here's what I do that they don't do. Here here are these behaviors these laws that I keep, right? Look at what I've done. And the focus is on self. And, and it, there's a contrast here because it is actually the tax collector in the next part of the parable who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where's his focus? God is his focus. Be merciful to me, And he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other who's trusting in himself. And we know that's the the point of the parable because in verse 9, John, I'm sorry, Luke told us that. He told the parable to some who trusted in themselves. And so compulsions like these activities that the, the Pharisee is engaging in, they're keeping him from looking to Christ, keeping him from running to the one who's truly going to give him what he needs before God. He's not crying out for mercy because he didn't see that he needs it. And so when we're looking to the behaviors that we engage in, like the compulsions, it keeps us from trust. It keeps us from faith in the one who's truly the one that we need. Our Savior, our Righteous One, our Redeemer, our Sustainer. Listen to this. This is uh, from C.S. Lewis. One mustn't make the Christian life into a punctilious system of law. 
like the Jewish, for two reasons. One, it raises scruples when we don't keep the routine. Number two, it raises presumption when we do. Nothing gives one a more spuriously good conscience than keeping rules, even if there's been a total absence of all real charity and faith. He's talking about the danger of law, behavior, as a system of religion, so to speak. It says, so if you've got these, the system of law that you're looking to in um, your Christianity, then when you are, or at least it seems to yourself that you're engaging in um, abiding by the law, then you feel good, right? You're presumptuous. You, you, you think everything's okay, right? You think you're, you're all right. But then, on the other hand, when you don't keep the laws in this system, that raises scruples. You become, you become frightened because you're not walking according to this system, this law. So he says, you can have a spuriously good conscience when you keep the law, right? Which means um, it's inauthentic, right? Inauthentic not really a good conscience, but you feel like you do. You keep the rules, but maybe there's a total absence of real love and faith. The things that are most important are that are more important. So we can't trust in these methods, these rules, these laws. That's not where our faith is to be directed. We can see this really in Colossians chapter 2. Look with me there. This is a great text. This is, I think, if, uh, probably central text. If I could say, look at one text to talk to somebody about compulsions with, look at this one. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Now, the, the context is Paul's writing to the believers in Colossae. Um, he's actually never visited this church, but he's writing to them based on what he knows of the church. And there seems to be one man, it could be more, who's uh, teaching error among the Colossians. And so Paul wants to prevent them from embracing this man's teaching. And so he points to Christ. In chapter 1, he's just he's um, um, promoting the supremacy of Christ. In, in him all things hold together. Right, and and if you look at that that one section in verses fifteen through twenty in Colossians chapter one, it's a beautiful hymn that is uh, really highlighting the lordship of Christ. And so he's he's pointing to Christ for um, the the focus and the trust of the Colossians um, to be directed toward. Okay, he wants them to look to Jesus, but he's got to address some of these these particulars when it comes to the false teaching that this man is promoting in their city and among these believers. And so, look with me, uh, actually, start, let's start a little ahead of this and look at verse 16. He's going to talk about some of the, the particulars of this man's false teaching. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shad- a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See how he's promoting Christ again? Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, right? That's like rigid self-denial, and worship of angels, 
going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? It's Jesus. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. He's saying, you got to hold fast to the head. Don't uh, th- These other elements of this false teaching, you need to disregard these things. And then look with me at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think this is key. Compulsions are a self-made religion. They're a self-made religion that is of no help in fighting sin. I'm looking to these rules that I have set up for myself, these compulsions, these laws. So it's a religion that I have created. I'm looking to appease my desires to escape this obsession or this fear with these rules that I myself have created. A self-made religion. And he says, it has no, there's no help in actually fighting sin. Paul says, it may look wise, but it only appears that way, right? He says, and and have you ever seen somebody that is denying themselves of a lot of things in life? It looks holy, doesn't it? It looks wise. We tend to kind of almost revere such people because, oh, wow, I, mean, I, I couldn't do that. I, I couldn't deny myself in the way that person's doing that. They're taking the Christian life very seriously. And that doesn't mean that self-denial is a bad thing. It is a good thing. But not when we're trusting in it, ultimately. It's not a good thing then. And that's what ends up being the error for the scrupulous person. It appears like it's wise. This actually makes it more dangerous because we can easily deceive ourselves and others into thinking that we're doing what is right and best. It looks wise, so no one's going to question you. It looks holy, so no one's going to say a word. And actually keeps you bound to fear-motivated work. It actually keeps you bound to fear-motivated work. In that Jonathan Bowers article, he references um, a monk from the 4th century. His name, I'm going to butcher this, but it's Simeon Stylites. I'm going to quote from Jonathan Bowers here. He was a man who lived in Syria in the 4th and 5th century A.D. To get away from people and devote himself more completely to God he determined to live on top of a pillar. According to accounts of his life, he stayed up there for 37 years. While this kind of behavior is certainly impressive, it is remarkably ineffective in the fight against sin. Referencing Colossians chapter 2. 
So you think, yeah, okay, he's going to avoid all of these things that could stimulate sin and temptation in his life by avoiding people. And he's up on this pillar for 37 years. But, but what about all of the commands to love people and to serve people? What about the one, one other commandments, right? What about the grace that's given through other people to help us in the fight against sin, right? What about that avenue of grace, so he's, he's cutting off certain avenues and means of grace and also disregarding and neglecting other commandments of Scripture. actually becomes something that promotes self more when it seems like it's holy and religious. Let's talk about replacing compulsions. First of all, a person who you're trying to help replace compulsions, needs to turn from self-reliance to Christ-reliance. Look at me at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, this text wherein Paul is talking about what's going on in his own heart, the war within... Verse 14... Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So no, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Turn from self-reliance to Christ-reliance. You see the war within? Then turn to the one who's really going to be your hope. Reliance on Jesus. The one who... He's conquered all of our soul's enemies for us. The one who not only has, has died to forgive us of every sin and to give us his righteousness before a holy God, but he's also purchased for us on the cross the grace that's necessary for us to renounce ungodliness and instead choose righteousness. That's from Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12. So... How do we do this? What's something practical about helping somebody turn from self-reliance to Christ-reliance? Okay? Prioritize. Have your counselee. Prioritize the religion God reveals in Scripture, even when it feels wrong inside. Even when it feels wrong inside. So, think of it this way. What feels right to them, the religion that feels right is the self-made religion they've come up with themselves. These laws that I want to engage in myself, the ones that, that I think are going to truly give me relief, but I know I'm lying to myself if I'm truthful. But that self-made religion is what they feel comfortable with. But help them 
live the way that God has laid out in Scripture, specifically, instead of engaging in the compulsion, help them to trust Christ, help them to walk according to His ways, even though it's going to feel wrong. What feels right is to return to the compulsion because that's what they're trusting in. But they need to trust in God's ways, the life eternal that is laid for us in Scripture. So even if it feels wrong, they need to stay the course of Scripture. Because we, 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 don't, we don't trust our feelings, do we? I mean, if you've learned anything, right? Uh, you learn we don't, we don't trust our feelings. We trust in Christ. And so we often have to do things where we're um, denying ourselves, denying our feelings so that we're doing what God actually calls us to do. And that's an act of faith. Even if our feelings aren't in the right place. We can say, God, forgive me that I don't feel like doing this. But now give me the grace to do it anyway and then replace these wrong desires with good ones as I do. So I think of my my son, Justin, um, a few years ago when we were out in the front, uh, in the street in front of our house and I was trying to help him learn to ride his bike. And he, in trying to learn how to ride it, he was so scared that he was going to fall. Right, as, as I'm sure you've had experiences with kids, they're scared they're going to fall and they're going to scrape their knee. And so I would, I would tell them, listen, when you feel like you want to stop pedaling because you're losing, you know, you're losing balance, actually you need to st- keep pedaling. Actually pedal faster, right? If you feel like you want to stop pedaling because you think you're going to fall, actually, you know, keep pedaling faster. That's what you need to do. You need to go against your feelings. What what you feel like doing is is just letting off of the, you know, just kind of put your feet out there to catch yourself. That's what you feel like doing. Don't do that. Actually pedal faster. And then you'll start to get it. You'll start to actually learn to ride the bike. And so he had to learn to uh, trust his dad do what his dad told him to do instead of what uh, he kept telling himself was right and what felt right. And that's an example of what we have here when it comes to the scrupulous person as well. God never commands us to do anything that's bad for us. Tell them that. This might feel wrong to you because you're so used to engaging in these compulsions, but God always tells us to do what is right and best for us. He never commands us to do something that is bad for us. He's a good father. The best. Infinitely so. And then it turned from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. So there's turn from self-reliance to Christ-reliance. Now we're telling them to turn from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. I love... Philippians, because of its Christ-centeredness, the Christ-centeredness of the Apostle Paul in this book. But it just bears looking to it again. Philippians chapter 1, 21. Paul gets it. He gets it. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why, why is dying gain? Well, I think we get a little bit of an insight In verse 23, in the second sentence in that verse, he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That is far better. To be with Christ. That's why it's gain. You get to enjoy Christ experientially without the hindrance of sin and the curse. That's why dying is gain. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, we read again of his heart related to Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so, the scrupulous person is trusting himself to engage in these compulsions to serve himself by relieving the obsession and the fear. But he needs to be thinking about trusting Christ for the exaltation of Christ. Oftentimes, the scrupulous person is trying to avoid certain sins because that is what is most comfortable and desirable to him. It looks holy on the surface, but underneath it's characterized by the idolatry of self. Right? This is what's most incomfortable. This, mo- this is what's most incom- uh, most comfortable to me. This is what's most desirable to me is that I avoid these things or I act in this way. And it might look holy to a lot of other people on the outside, but it's really just a self-service. So what we need to help people see is that Christ is worthy of your trust and your obedience, and concentrate your heart and your mind upon Him. The scrupulous person needs to meditate on all of the ways in which Jesus is worthy of his obedience. Who is Christ? Have him give a homework assignment related to that. Answer that. Tell me who is Christ. Write that out in two paragraphs or a page or two pages. What has Christ done for the sinner? What has Christ promised to the sinner? Why is he worthy of obedience? So that, again, the focus is taken off of self onto the one who is the one they truly need. But the scrupulous person also needs to turn from ritualism to relating to God. Ritualism is, like like we said, it's often very mindless. And it looks like it is religion that God might be pleased with, but it actually takes the person further away from God, further away from enjoying God and relating to God. And so uh, ritualism actually hijacks God's good practices and trusts those practices instead of using those practices in trusting God, right? Takes what God has, I mean, because many of the things that uh, a scrupulous person will engage in, he can find support for in the Word of God, Right? But he takes that and he engages in it as a compulsion and he trusts that good practice instead of using the practice to draw near to God, trust God, obey God. And so there there is no relationship with God in this, even though it might look holy on the outside. I want you to look with me at Psalm 119, starting in verse 33. To help counselees dealing with this, see how they ought to relate to God. And the perfect place to turn for this is the Psalms. Because you, you see how to interact with God, how to engage with God, how to have a dynamic relationship with God that is not formulaic, right? Starting in verse 33, Psalm 119. Let's look at 33 through 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 
Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Look with me starting in verse 137. We'll see another stanza that speaks to this. 137. Same same chapter. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget my word, forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I'm small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out. By your command, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Now, think about this with me. Okay? The psalmist here is relating to God. He praises God. He makes requests of God. He tells God of the righteous choices he has made for him, for the Lord's sake. This, there's all these different ways that you see the psalmist actually relating to the Lord, right? It's not a mindless kind of uh, repet, uh, repetition that he's engaging in. No, he's, he is talking to him, telling him certain things, praising him, telling him what he is doing because he loves him so and because he, uh, he honors him so, but he's also asking for things for God to give him what he needs. This is a dynamic relationship with God. And the compulsion, the compulsions that a scrupulous person engages in is very formulaic, robotic, right? Instead of actually knowing God, they're taking God's rituals, his, his laws, his principles, and using them in a very uh, flat way, right? A self-centered way, ultimately. And not truly knowing him and drawing near to him. You need to do, this is something practical if you're, if you're counseling somebody like this. Be careful that counseling homework and prescribed activity doesn't become penance or works of self-atonement. Like, okay, well, I did all my homework for the eighth, eighth week in a row. I've got it done. It's all done again. And that can become, homework can become a compulsion. Right? So you have to be aware of that. You don't want them to find that to be their new compulsion because you know, they may switch. It might, it might be something, oh, okay, they find that this is something that temporarily neutralizes their anxiety. That's interesting. I'll give you an illustration. So I would, um, you know, Dan Kirk, has he been in here this weekend? Yeah. Dan, okay. Um, I, when I was really struggling with a lot of uh, the scrupulous tendencies in my life, back, it's probably been, it's probably been seven or eight years ago, and I was an associate pastor at Calvary Bible Church, and I would, uh, I would sit in my office after I, you know, I had lunch with Dan, or I, and, and we had to talk about something, and I'd think, oh man, you know, I said that, that was, maybe that was flippant, or maybe that, that was, that, that wasn't really funny, I was joking with Dan, and that, he might have found that offensive, and so I'd often go back to Dan, and I'd say, hey, listen, forgive me for saying that, forgive me for doing that, you know, you know uh, engaging in that, whatever it was, it was just pretty normal behavior for me to go and knock on his door, and he got to expect it, you know, that I was going to come and ask forgiveness of something else, 
And he, he understood, okay, you're, you're coming to me and you're quickly um, asking my forgiveness. I, I don't want you to come to me anymore unless you've gone to God first. You've prayed to God. You've, you've done business with the Lord. You've talked to Him about it. You've prayed about it with Him. You've engaged with God on this issue. Once you've done that, then yeah, you can come and talk to me. And I thought that was such wise counsel. And, and it ended up being what, exactly what I needed because I was going to Him to, you know, temporarily neutralize the anxiety I was feeling because I thought that I had offended Him or I thought that I'd done something sinful that, that was, that was wrong. I didn't want Him to think ill of me and I was scared that I might be that kind of person, you know? He said, no, you, you can't come to me until you have gone and done business with the Lord. You have gone and engaged with him. And that's the kind of counsel, good counsel that people need. But they need help in understanding what, it, what a dynamic relationship with Jesus looks like. And I, I think I've, I've talked about that chapter in Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free, chapter 9. What a great chapter. It's a book on fighting lust, but it could be used for any sin that anybody engages in. And chapter 9 is my favorite chapter. How to fight lust using a dynamic relationship with Jesus. And in the chapter, he gets into talking about uh, John chapter 6, when there's that crowd of people that come and find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee after he fed the 5,000. And he says, you have not come over here because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. And he taught, um, Lambert in, in the chapter talks about how they were seeking Jesus uh, just for what he could give them. Like he was going to be the, the militaristic Messiah that they needed to overthrow Rome and fill their, their bellies. That's what they were looking to him as. They weren't looking to him as the Messiah that came to deal with sin, right? And so the whole point is you need to come to Jesus based on who he actually is according to Scripture and you relate to him based on who he truly is. Don't just look to him to be one thing, right? And some people look to Jesus to be their therapist alone, right? But he's so much more than that. Take all of Christ, he, all of who he is, all of what he's done, and relate to him based on that. Not just, okay, yeah, I, he's my therapist, and so that's what I go to him for. Well, that's, that is limiting him. And so... Uh, that's a really good chapter if you want to help somebody understand what it looks like to engage with God and, ha- and uh, helping to fight their sins with a dynamic relationship to their Savior. Okay, I'm over. But Kevin Carson hasn't poked his head through that window yet. I haven't seen his, his eyes coming through there, so I'm okay. Um, if you have any questions, I'd love to answer them. But let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for loving us. And I pray that these things would be instrumental in all of us, Lord God. Even if uh, the people in this room don't struggle with the scrupulous tendencies, I pray that they were encouraged to help others. And also, may there have been some some principles and some, some scriptures that they take and they use so that they can walk more closely with you. Because you're worthy and because you love us and the love you have shown is unbreakable. And so we thank you for that most of all in Jesus' name. Amen.